This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That I'm absolutely delighted to be joined on Football CFB by Paul McCarthy. Paul is someone who I admire from the world of journalism. He is a former chair of the Football Writers Association. He's still heavily involved in the Football Writers Association and has recently launched the Football Writers Association's own podcast, Press Box Confidential, which if you haven't listened to it yet, you simply have to. The podcast looks back at key moments within the game of football, not only for football fans and people who watched it at the time, but also key moments for journalists. And Paul regularly speaks to the people who were there in the front line as such, covering the big stories at those times as well. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Absolute pleasure, Callum. Nice to be here. I mentioned the the Press Box Confidential podcast. I've, I've told you this all fair before. I really enjoy the podcast because I feel that it transforms me back in time to some of those key moments and what those what dealing with some of the big characters like a Jose Mourinho or a Sir Alex Ferguson would be. I mean, one of the the the, the most incredible insights I found was Sir Alex's trust he had with the old school journalists as the guys referred to it in the podcast and how the new wave of journalists had to work really hard at trying to develop that relationship with them because obviously a lot of the times he would maybe have off the record chats that wouldn't be um, reported, he would have meetings in separate rooms whereas that changed when the new fleet of journalists arrived just how much fun do you get out of working on the podcast? Because as I say, it really does transform the listener back in time to some of those key moments. Yeah, I really enjoy it, actually. We, we decided, to, um, we decided to, to, to do it because we, a, we felt very lonely not having our own podcast, but everybody in the, else in the world seemed to have a podcast. Um, but more um, importantly, we needed to, we wanted to be able to, uh, make sure that the Football Writers Association stayed relevant. It wanted to reach a, a wider, as wide an audience as possible. Um, unfortunately, because of uh, COVID and lockdown, we haven't been able to put on any um, events like a Footballer of the Year dinner, which we hold annually in May. Um, our, our tribute evening at the Savoy, where we kind of induct somebody into what is essentially our Hall of Fame. Um, we weren't able to hold that uh, in January. So really what we wanted to do was to, you know, we've got sponsors who need to be satisfied. We want to show people that we are still out there, that we haven't disappeared. Uh, so it just seemed like a, a really good way of doing it. And we didn't want it to be just, I'm not, I don't know how to say this without it sounding patronising, just a another um, football podcast. I think there are lots of football podcasts which look at what's happened in week's events, look at what's happening in an up-to-date way, um, look at, you know, the immediacy of it. We wanted it to be a reflection of what our membership is, and that's from guys who, are on, who started out their careers in the 50s, 60s, 70s, right up to 
students who are just learning their trade um, at university and um, widen it out so it's not just writers per se on in the national or the local press but people who, who like have a podcast who are bloggers uh, who work in radio who work in television so we wanted to give people a platform and we just thought that we should tap into our expertise and that is We've had guys who've been at every major story, I guess we're going back at like 30 odd years. Um, they've been there, as you say, Callum, they were in the front line, they were experiencing, they were having to work, you know, under pressure of deadlines um, on some of the biggest stories that have ever been in, um, in British English football. So that's the reason behind the podcast. That's the kind of genesis of it that's really what the podcast is all about and you ask me if i enjoy it it's great fun i love it i love recalling the old stories so many stories many of which i've forgotten but we want it to be like journalists getting together in a press room before a game or around a dinner table or at a bar where we've all traditionally met and shared these kind of stories stories that haven't made the papers or that haven't got themselves into the public arena as it were and just to tell a few of those. Absolutely. And and in terms of journalism, one of the things I really want to get your insight into is the importance of contacts, because you, you hear, you, you know this, Paul, you hear this a lot, or oh, print journalism is dying, um, this, that, and the next thing. But to be a journalist and to be working at the highest level, like yourself, the likes of Henry Winter, Matt Dickinson, and, and so many other great journalists, I could literally be here all day talking about members of the Football Writers Association. How important is it to make contacts, to build up trust and relationships and crucially break the stories that people want to hear or read about because at the end of the day, people can talk about print uh, being on the decline or whatever they want, but there's still so many platforms out there. There's still so many people out there desperate for the news. So how important are contacts in, in, in the day-to-day -day business of being a journalist? Yeah, I, I, keep, I keep hearing that old school journalists are on the way out and it's a new wave who are, you know, who are, who are bloggers, um, who work through social media, whose, whose main port of call is that. Look at the great all the great stories that have been broken, you know, just this season, if, if you like. Um, just last week, who broke the Frank Lampard getting the sack at Chelsea story? Matt Law, who works for The Telegraph, print journalist in essence, but broke it on The Telegraph's um, Twitter site. That's the way you break stories these days. It's actually good fun to be able to break stories immediately because in the old days yeah if you had a story you were praying that nobody else had it and you wouldn't know if anybody else had it until the papers came out the next day now you can do it immediately but all the great stories have been all the big biggest football stories have been broken by what you would essentially call print journalists but working on a different platform look at the probably the biggest story of um the last 10 years the biggest football story sam wallace again in the telegraph kudos to the telegraph breaking about the um the the, the intention of manchester united and and liverpool to um launch a breakaway from the premier league and to, for, for the premier league's you know the whole ethos of the premier league to be thrown up in the air now that didn't happen but sam wallace broke it he broke it at about midday on a sunday it's 
the end, and he only does that. And Matt Law and John Cross, Sammy Mockbell, all the great story getters, all the great story breakers do it because they've got contacts. It's not an accident. You have to speak to people. You have to build trust. The only way you get stories is for people to tell you something. And, you know, I've got contacts that I've had uh, since the mid 80s. Now, they've probably in that time only given me half a dozen stories. One guy I know is a great friend and a great contact. probably in that amount of time has only given me half a dozen stories, but they've all been big stories and they've all been good stories and they've all been sort of agenda setting stories. But I speak to I speak to contacts and I'm not I'm not a journalist per se anymore, but I still work in and, and around that world. I still speak to all my contacts all the time and they don't give you a story every time you pick up the phone. But you actually have to speak to them. I think it's so very easy these days for young reporters to make contact with people via social media, be it DMs, uh, Instagram, that sort of thing. But nothing actually beats picking a phone up and speaking to them because it's a natural conversation. It's not just, are you doing this? You can just answer in one word. You've got to build that kind of relationship. And emails and texts and, and, and um, social media, they're all very Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's great for making an initial contact, but for actually developing that contact into um, a basis of trust goes way, way, way beyond just using text messages or emails. It goes to speaking to people. It goes to, de to, to building trust friendships, relationships, it's essential. You live and die in your contacts. The great reporters have contacts that they can speak to every single day of the week and not get anything. And then that, when they phone them again, they get something. So that, to answer your question in a very, very long-winded way, Callum, contacts are the be-all and end-all. They are the bread and butter of a journalist's profession. One of the things you mentioned that's always interested me is when you referred back to the sort of older times where you would have a story and it would be broken the next day. See, when you are a journalist and you've got a story from a contact, a trusted source, and you're about to break it, but there, I don't mean there's an element of doubt in terms of what you've been told. I don't mean it that way, but you know the way football is. It can move very quickly and a decision yeah, that's been made at eight o'clock in the evening can be totally different by 8 a.m. the next day. Describe that feeling when you've got a story, you've given it to your editor, you're planning to break it, and you're just hoping, I suppose, and praying that it stays that way so that you get the scoop that you've worked so hard for. There is always a feeling at the pit of your stomach. I mean, on the podcast, I spoke to um, spoke to Sam Wallace about the, the, the Project Big Picture um, story that he had, and he worked on that for several weeks. Uh, he got the initial tip. He, he worked his contacts he got more insight he actually got the full breakdown of what project big picture was um, was going to be and he filed it with his desk obviously a, a story of that magnitude has to be looked at by lawyers um, they gave it the all clear and he pressed the button as i say he broke it online on t in the telegraph on a sunday which is an unusual day to break a big story but it was there it was there to be it was there to be um, had, and he was worried that other people might be getting a sniff of it. But even if you're, uh, I say, even if you're a hundred percent secure in your information, and you're absolutely, you feel it's copper bottom. The lawyers have been through it with a fine tooth comb. They're happy with it. 
there is still something in the pit of your stomach. And I've been there many times. Um, and you know it's right, but you know it's going to drop, but you also know what the impact's going to be. And you have to brace yourself for that kind of impact because there will be people who are trying to um, potentially discredit the story. People who didn't want the story out will be trying to distance themselves from it. Um, but if you're secure and you're comfortable, and more importantly, your editors and your lawyers are comfortable, then yes, there is that feeling in the pit of your stomach. That normally goes by the first reaction the time people are then following it up you get the satisfaction of setting the agenda of people chasing after your story trying to catch up with what you've got absolutely nailed down so yeah there's an adrenaline rush when a story hits like that um there is a nervousness i guess but the nervousness is quickly dispelled when when you know you see other people chasing their tails to try and catch up Another aspect of journalism, that football writing as well, that really fascinates me is, is transfers because there's so many people out there that play football manager, they play FIFA, they play these video games and I think they assume that a transfer can happen within five minutes but you know as well as I do, transfers are incredibly complex, there's so many factors at play, there's the player himself, there's the agents, there's representatives, there's obviously the two clubs as well. When covering a transfer story, describe that feeling because, as I say, there sometimes seems to be more nowadays, I would say, an impatience within social media for transfers to happen immediately. I think of David Ornstein, for instance, whenever Arsenal are linked with a player and uh, <laughs> it feels like the majority of Twitter are tweeting poor David saying, where's the update, where's the update, what's happening, what's happening? Yeah, it's, I think that's it's utterly ridiculous. Honestly, um your team could, whoever your team is, they could sign Lionel Messi and before the inks even dry, they'll be saying sign Ronaldo or sign Neymar or sign or sign Mbappe. You know, it's ridiculous. It's, it's not, and, and you, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's this football manager mentality, if you like, that, okay, well, we can sign that, sign that player. Some of the biggest um, transfers happen very, very quickly. I think back to Eric Cantona leaving Leeds for Manchester United. Leeds sort of started the ball rolling on that by making an inquiry about Dennis Irwin. That was quickly knocked back. And Sir Alex Ferguson cheekily said, well, OK, Irwin's not for sale, but what about Cantona? And Howard Wilkinson, I wasn't, I don't know, for whatever reason, was open to it. And Leeds were open to it. And, um, and Eric Cantona happened. And that happened in the space of about 48 to 72 hours. Now, that was a... a era-defining transfer, if you like, which happened in a very, very, very short space of time. But that is unusual. Even the most boring, mundane transfer um, can take weeks, months even. Um, and this impatience by, by of, 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 of fans that something can happen. Well, you've got the money, go and buy him and then go and buy somebody else and then buy somebody else. It's, it's ridiculous. You, you, you have to you have to, as you said, Callum, in that uh, in, in, in your question, there are so many factors. And don't forget that an agent might be sell, trying to sell that player to three different clubs at the same time to find out the best deal for the best deal for his client. Um, so it's it's transfers are very difficult. And in terms of a movable feast, they're the they're the most difficult to nail down. That's why the good journalists. You mentioned David Ornstein, and he's a very, very uh, fine case in point. 
the good journalists know and trust their sources. They've built a relationship, as I said earlier, they've built a relationship and they'll only write something when they know it's absolutely nailed on. I mean, you could, and, and I see it on social media, all these blagging accounts saying, oh, and these ITK accounts, um, they link him, him, him. They lift five or six different players every day. It's ludicrous. Good journalists know that basically uh, transfers happen when everybody's happy and not before. I used to enjoy when, when you were on Sky, Paul, and you would be talking about the major stories from the papers in the morning. And and and, and I'm not having a go at Sky by saying this, but I feel that we're talking today, for instance, on transfer deadline day, and there seems to be, Jim White will love me saying this, of course, uh, fellow Scott, there seems to be a sort of yellow tie culture now where there's such an obsession with transfer deadline day and, and the sort of flurry of deals that can be done. In your opinion, having covered football for so long, is that something that still excites you or is there part of you that looks at as you get older and think that this just shows you the, the craziness of certain football clubs and how they just I don't think, seem to be organised? I think there's a madness. I think there's a madness. I mean, I, I was I read Rory Smith this morning on Twitter and he quite rightly saying, that why is a, a football club the size of Liverpool, champions of Europe, champions of the Premier League, champions of the world, leaving their transfer business to the final day of the um, of the transfer window when Van Dijk has been injured um, for 90% of the season while Matip's out, while Joe Gomez is out, why are they leaving? And it, it beggars belief that even a club like Liverpool whose transfer dealings are eminently sensible in the main and, and very, very good in the main, they're leaving it to the last day of the window to sign a centre-half as cover when everybody in the everybody in the world knows that Liverpool need a centre half. Why would they be playing Fabinho or Jordan Henderson at centre half if they didn't need a centre half? So yeah, I think there's a I think the I think the, the the frenzy is less these days. I don't think there will be very many deals done uh today. We're talking about the last day of the transfer window. I don't think there'll be many deals struck today, major deals. I think there'll be a few flurries here and there. But I think clubs, by and large, know that you're struggling if you come down to the last day of the window to get your business done. But I, I think there's a, you know, you you talk to you mentioned Sky, you talk to people at Sky. It's the, you know, it's the biggest few days of their year, the transfer deadline window, um, or even the transfer window deadline. Um, they get massive, massive numbers. There is an insatiable desire for transfers. I mean, I've been. I've never made a secret of it. I'm a West Ham fan. Um, and when I was working as a journalist, uh, you know, I would speak to friends who were all West Ham. Or, you know, my, my family are, on my wife's side are all Spurs fans. And you, you say, and, and the thing that they say, first of all, the first question they ask is, who are West Ham buying? Who are we selling? Anybody, do you know? Who, who, what insight can you give me? And my wife's family, Spurs fans, who are Spurs getting? Who are we buying? It is... It's a, it's a fantastic desire because everybody loves that excitement of your club finally signing somebody or signing somebody that you think is going to completely change the whole picture for your club um, for the rest of the season. I, it, very often, they never come to light. Um, but yeah, I can, see the, I can see the appetite. I can do, see the desire. I do think leaving everything to the last minute is ludicrous. 
I've got a very broad question for you now, Paul, so please bear with me with it. How would you sum up the development of the Premier League over the piece of your career? You just mentioned the fact that you're a West Ham United fan. You think about Upton Park and moving to the Olympic Stadium. And I know there's controversy there, but in, in essence, does that sort of portray the, the very fast nature of the development in English football over the last 30 years? Yeah, absolutely. I think the Premier League is fantastic. I love it. Um, I think the improvement in stadia, in training grounds, in facilities, um, in uh, a commercial aspect, the television rights, is um, unmatched around the world in, in, in football. The only thing that you can compare it to, I guess, is American football in, uh, in the States, uh, where, where their product just gets better and better and bigger and bigger. Um, and the Premier League is now, I, is, the defi is the defining football body around the world, I think, uh, at, at certainly at, at club level. Um, it's amazing. I, I, I struggle to I struggle to think back to a time before the Premier League. Now, that sounds that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And going back, I have to go back to 1992. Um, but it is uh, the development of um, the quality of player that we now see gracing the Premier League is there's no comparison. Um, one of the really silly little things that you you when you look back and you watch stuff on Sky, which is very retro. You look at the state of the pitch, pitches. And that's really, I know that sounds ludicrous, but the state of the pitches pre-Premier League and in the early days of the Premier League, where there wasn't as much money for a groundsman, there wasn't the best facilities for groundsmen. Um, they didn't have the kind of equipment that you really needed, um, certainly during the winter months. But now, you know, we're in um, January, February, we're in the middle of winter, and the pitches, by and large, are absolutely magnificent. They don't have to, players don't have to slog around. They don't have to worry about the run of the ball, the bounce of the ball. Their technique can be assured. And that's just a very small thing, but it's a, it's a hallmark of what the Premier League have, have, have helped develop and, and, and bring to football. I know that sounds very banal and it sounds a bit dull but it's just a tiny fraction an insight a look at what the Premier League means. In terms of the Premier League over the the course since 92 who would you say have been your favourite players to watch and, and cover just from a, a purely individual perspective as being a football fan as well as a football How long writer? have you got? How long have you <laughs> as got? As long as you wish. All day. Okay <laughs> so in no particular order and this 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 changes the players that have I have loved watching that have got me out of my seat. Alan Shearer, Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp. Um, there's so, so, so many. Uh, Eden Hazard, um, David Beckham, Cristiano Ronaldo, Wayne Rooney. But out of all of them, I mean, I, I'm just trying, I'm just, you know, just trading a list of great players I know. But of all of them, Thierry Henry. Thierry Henry, I, I've been very, very, very fortunate to have been at so many games covering Arsenal when Thierry Henry was playing. Uh, 
the goal he scored against Manchester United at Highbury, where he's flicked it up and volleyed it past Bartes. Bartes didn't move. Um, was one of those moments where I, I let, and I don't very much don't. I've done it very very rarely, out of my seat, with excitement, with joy, with ecstasy for something. He's not even you know he's not he's a, he's an Arsenal player for God's sake. I don't care about Arsenal particularly. But to see something like that and to be at Highbury that day when he did that was astonishing. One of the other ones that he did, and this is a, a lesser known one, a backheeled goal where he backheeled it against Charlton through um, Mark Fish's legs. He backheeled it, he nutmegged him and backheeled it in. And I remember I was in the second or third row at the press box at Highbury, very old, cramped conditions. Um, Gordon Strachan was commentating for BBC Five Live uh, and he's and I remember hearing him say on commentary I don't care where you are in the world watching football you will not have witnessed anything like we've just seen at Highbury and Thierry Henry and that just about summed it up I think there have been some fantastic players Cristiano Ronaldo was breathtakingly good in the in in his very I guess, short time at Manchester United. Astonishing. Um, but it was Thierry Henry was the, uh, was, um, was, is the, is the man who I, who, while my top five changes, he will always be number one. And the best, ga the best game I saw was um, at White Hart Lane. Spurs were leading 3-0 at halftime against Manchester United and United came back to win 5-3 and that was amazing to be at White Hart Lane and watch that game that was simply awe-inspiring. When do you think of the Premier League era we think of Sir Alex Ferguson of course we do Jose Mourinho, Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, um, Arsene Wenger, um, Conte, Ranieri all these incredible managers that have won the Premier League is there a manager or two that you can think of who you absolutely love dealing with and, and, and watching their teams play that maybe you consider to be underrated and maybe forgotten by the by the younger generation of fans? Uh, to deal with Sam Allardyce fantastic didn't always enjoy watching his teams um, but to deal with just top, top, top class. Knew exactly the journalism game inside out um, and basically was very, very helpful. Uh, was um, is great company. Um, and I think, you know, the very fact that you look at the Bolton team um, finished in the European places. Bolton finished in European places. Look where they are now. Um, is a is an in, incredible story. So I think, and I know for a lot of younger people, Sam Allardyce may be seen as a dinosaur, may be seen as a figure of fun, if, if you like. But what he's achieved, um, I think, has been um, has been outstanding. Uh, teams I've liked to watch, away from the accepted big teams, um, your, your Uniteds, your Cities, your Liverpools. I loved watching Kevin Keegan's Newcastle. They weren't underrated. They played some fantastic football. Um, Kevin's decision to sign Aspria, I think, completely derailed them. If he hadn't signed Aspria, 
I think they would have won the league. Um, but that was Kevin. Um, you know, he and I had a falling out when he was England manager. I think he was, um, I, I, I don't think he was up to the job of England manager. He admitted it himself. And I was very, very critical of him. Um, and he and I had a falling out, but I cannot take away from the way that his, um, the way that his Newcastle team played with uh, Ferdinand and Shearer and Ginola. And yeah, it was just a great game. And when they, when they won at Old Trafford, 5-0 at Old Trafford, Philippe Albert catched it with that chip over Schmeichel. That was one of the great games as well. So I guess to deal with Sam Allardyce, I think he's underrated. Um, away from the accepted big teams and the ones you, you mentioned there, Callum, yes, that Newcastle of the Keegan era. In terms of access, how has the development of the Premier League impacted upon that for football writers? Yes, tough. Um, I think clubs now are their own media entities. Um, the access, I mean, take away the whole COVID period because we're doing everything on Zoom, I, I get that. But the whole access um, is the question of access, the ability to to actually meet people at football clubs is severely limited. I remember I cut my teeth as a, a very young journalist covering Wimbledon, where the year that they won the FA Cup, 1988, and I was there on the local paper there for four years. And I would go to the training ground four or five times, uh, four or five times a week. I would just rock up at the training ground. You didn't have to have an appointment. There was no security on the door. You were just strolling. Um, Wimbledon were a little bit different. They used to train on a, um, a council pitch or a council um, park uh, at the bottom of the A3 in London um, uh, called Richardson Evans Memorial Park. Um, and they used to get changed above a working, um, like a, a, a calf, like um, a travel calf. Um, and there you, you would have the likes of John Fashionu, Vinnie Jones, Dennis Wise, Laurie Sanchez, getting their um, post-training bacon butty alongside some guy who was driving a truck. That was incredible. But you could go down there and you could speak to any player that you liked, as long as they wanted to speak to you. Um, and it was open house. And it was the same at West Ham, to be fair. You used to go along to their old training ground at Chadwell Heath. Any day that you like, you walk in, you know the guy on the door. Hello, how are you doing? All oh, right, who are you down to see? Oh, I don't know yet. I'm just going to pop my head in the door. You see Harry Redknapp when he was manager. Oh, boys, come in. Just go and help yourself. I'm just going to get changed. Help yourself to um, a cup of tea. Get the girls to knock you up a bacon butty. And then I'll come and chat to you afterwards. Okay, Harry, blah, blah, blah. Instead, you'd watch training. Nothing was closed. It was open. And these were the early days of the Premier League as well. This is not, we're not talking like 500 years ago. But things changed. Players became um, bigger. They earned more money. They wanted more protection. You had more people around them trying to protect them from the media. Um, but I think we've gone too far. It feels like we've gone too far. There's just no, we talked about contacts, Callum. There's no ability now to really, truly build up close relationships in the way that uh, my generation of reporter was able to do. Um, so you're dealing more with their agents and you're getting everything secondhand rather than firsthand, which I'm not sure is entirely healthy for either the player or the journalist. 
you, you've talked very well there about how the access has, has changed. And for you, your role has changed over the years, Paul. You've been on the front line with so many of the guys we talked about earlier covering the biggest stories of the day. You've also done a lot of media consultancy work as well. Two of your, your clients have been Kia Janabjan and, and Carlos Tevez. What was it like representing those two individuals in particular? Because the amount of scrutiny and attention that Janabjan and Tevez got during their time in English football was 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 quite interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, I was um, I was the sports editor at the News of the World in um, 2011 when it closed in summer of 2011. I had the option of staying on within News UK or News International as it was then. Um, but I thought I'd try something else. I thought I'd try something different. I had the um, safety net of a, of, of, of a payout from the paper. So I was, you know, financially okay. Um, so basically, I, over the years, I've tried to help people out. People have come to me and asked me for advice as a journalist, basically how to stay out of the news of the world and, and, and similar papers. So I'd given them advice. Um, so I tried to, I decided that I wanted to do it sort of as a full-time PR media consultant. Um, funnily enough, I had always been good friends with Kia, got on very well with him, um, going back to the time when he tried to buy West Ham many, many years ago. Um, and then he brought Tevez and Mascarano to the club. Stayed in touch with Kia. He was looking for somebody to help out. I um, started my company on September the 1st, 2011. On September the 21st, 2011, Carlos Tevez decided that he didn't want to warm up anymore for Manchester City. And, you know, I, I to this day, I, I will absolutely go to my grave saying he didn't refuse to play. He refused to continue warming up. Um, and the fallout from Mancini and Manchester City was amazing, astonishing. Um, and, uh, yeah, I felt like I was in the eye of the storm for a long time, for many, many, many months, actually. But it was great training, great. It was, it was um, the ability to be able to speak to people who I'd spoke with as, as colleagues and friends over the years, being slightly on the other side of the fence, but still having an, under, an understanding of what the requirements from the media was and to be able to sort of translate that into, well, at, at times firefighting, at times positive, at times trying to, you know, back on the negatives around Carlos um, and Kia. So it was great grounding. Um, it was tough. Uh, it was a battle that I think resulted in a draw. And um, because Carlos came back, I think in the in the in the February 2012, and Manchester City he helped Manchester City go on to win the title. He gave them that new impetus. I think he scored a hat trick against Norwich, and he went on to. Um, yeah, he, he went on to help Manchester City um, win the title. Uh, it was always going to be a short-lived affair after that. Um, so it was it was managing his expectations and Kia's expectations, and also, you know, trying to maintain a semblance of normality with Manchester City, and that was that was tough. It was a tough gig, but it was um, it was great fun. You mentioned being on the other side um, compared to, to being the, the journalist and the football writer looking for a, for, a, for a story and looking for for content. Being on that other side, how have you found that? Is it was it was it is it is it something that you would say that you are in a position now where you enjoy it just as much as you did being on the front line previously? 
I don't know about enjoying it as much. Um, I think going to a football match and covering a football match is a privilege and a joy. It's fantastic. The adrenaline rush. I've never experienced anything like it when you're up against deadline and you know that you have to be at the very top of your game uh, every time you try and open your laptop. Um, very, I mean, I, I guess if you're talking in business speak and it's transferable skills as a somebody in PR and media and communications, you, it's the same, it's the same skills that you have as a journalist. You have to, be able to identify the story quickly. You have to decide what the strongest message is that you want to get out. You, you have to decide where and when is it best placed. Um, and you have to be able to speak to people and know exactly what they want. Uh, and I know what journalists want and what the media require, but I also know what my clients require. And it's that finding that balance between the two. Um, so no, I don't. It's it's two sort two sides of the same coin, Callum. Uh, the skill set is basically the same. You're just coming at it from a different angle. Last couple of questions I've got for you. One of the, my favourite parts of the of the Press Box Confidential podcast is when you ask the writers to tell us about their favourite exclusive. So yours is a sort of two parter, Paul. What's okay. the favourite story you've ever covered? and also your favourite exclusive as well? Because I imagine those could be quite different. Yeah, favourite story that I've covered. Uh, I don't think you can ever beat being away at a tournament. Um, and I know it's not one story, so perhaps I'm blurring the uh, boundaries on this. Um, but going away and being away and immersed in, um, immersed in a tournament is like nothing on earth it's absolutely fantastic you live on there's an old saying you live on planet football for five or six weeks and you only come up for air when you go home um so france 98 the world cup incredible um just brilliant covering england one of the most memorable games that i'll ever Argentina, San Etienne, it was amazing. Um, talk about being up out of your seat. Uh, when, we th when we thought that uh, Sol Campbell had won it, only for him to be, um, only for uh, it to be disallowed, and then Argentina go back at the other end, the penalty shootout, oh, that was just, that kind of took my, that kind of took my breath away. Um, for other reasons, 2006 World Cup in Baden-Baden, being at the centre of the, the, the WAGS World Cup was great fun. Um, Japan 2002, I know I seem to be just listing World Cups and, and tournaments and it's difficult to get away, it's difficult to get away from that um, because there are there is so much going on and you feel that you're at the centre of it, which is, you know, a great adrenaline rush as I, as I mentioned earlier. So those would be the best, the, my best times as a journalist. Let's, if I can blur the lines a bit, those were the greatest occasions to be a journalist. Um, Istanbul in 2005, it will, will live with me forever and ever and ever. It was an incredible night. Um, I wasn't reporting live because I was working for a Sunday paper at the time and that game was on a Wednesday night at the time. But just to be able to sit there and watch that game unfold was amazing. 
So if you'll excuse me, those are uh, just a list of, you know, a few. The best exclusive that I ever broke, and now this is quite a weird one, actually. Um, I was the sports editor of the News of the World, so I wasn't actually, you know, writing. I was in charge of the whole sports desk. And it was um, a Sunday evening, and it was Valentine's Day, and I was away with my wife, and we were in a hotel on a Sunday night, and we were just about to go out for dinner. And I got a phone call from a very, very good contact at Chelsea, um, somebody who I'd known for many, many years and who had never let me down on a tail. And he said, uh, you all right? I said, yeah, I'm fine. He said, uh, Ashley Cole's just shot somebody. <laughs> I, went, I went, what? He said, yeah, Ashley Cole's just shot somebody with an air rifle. I went, oh, where? He said, um, at the training ground in the, uh, in the dressing room at the training ground. I've gone, shut up. Like, don't wind me up. He said, "That's absolutely right." He said, he's, he's, "There's a young kid who's basically on an internship, and he's shot him in the ass with an air rifle." I've gone. Uh, he said, uh, "He said, I swear to you, it's absolutely true." He said, "The club are panicking like hell that it's going to come out." I went, okay, fine. Anyway, first thing I do is it's a Sunday, and I'm working for the News of the World, so we're not coming out for a week. So basically, the first thing you do is, and pardon the, pardon the ridiculous pun, is you cover, your, you cover your backside. I phoned my editor, who is a great man, good journalist. Great, uh, I liked him immensely. And he, he, he knew it would be unusual for me to phone him on a Sunday because it was both of our days off. So I phoned him and I told him and he went, OK, well, that's not going to hold, is it? I said, no. He said, OK, well, just make sure that we're well covered when the story breaks. We've got all the reaction to it and we're, we're on top of it. I said, yeah, OK, I will. Anyway, nothing happened. So Sunday, nothing happened. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm in the office. We've got this story. Absolutely, we've got it nailed down. I've got all the details. I know exactly what happened, when it happened, but I can't believe that it's not gonna break. Anyway, Thursday, Friday, in the end, so I'm thinking, listen, this is just be our luck. We're gonna be on deadline on Saturday and it's gonna break somewhere or it's gonna break on Friday and we have to just follow it up. So you lose the impact of the story. So basically I'm on tenterhooks. It gets to five, five o'clock on Saturday. Chelsea are playing on Sunday. I think this is gonna hold, this will hold and we've got it. And this is not just a back page story. It's gonna be the front page lead in the news of the world. At the time was the biggest um, English language newspaper in the world sold, you know, two and a half million copies seen around the world. So I've suddenly thought, I've gone to the editor. I said, I think this is going to hold. He went, okay. He said, phone Chelsea. So I phoned Chelsea. I phoned the head of communications there, a guy called Steve Atkins, who's a good friend. And uh, I phoned and said, Steve? He went, yeah. He said, Ashley Cole. Yeah. I said, he shot somebody with a uh, air rifle, hasn't he? He said, oh, I've been waiting for this call. I went, okay, well, he said, we're not gonna make any comment. I said, Anna, am I wrong? And he said, I can't make any, any comment. Um, I said, Steve, just tell me if I'm gonna look foolish on this. And he said, I can't tell you, we will have a statement later. So that was enough for me to know that it was right. If they were preparing a statement, I knew that it was right. And we went and that story held all week. I don't think that would happen now. I can't remember actually what year it was. It would have been, I think, 20, 2010, 29, 2009. I can't remember what year it was. 
Um, but now that would have broken on Twitter by now. That would have broken if it was if if a player of Ashley Cole's stature at a club like Chelsea had done does that today. It's it's it'll be it'll be out and the story will be broken. Back then, before the real sort of growth of social media, it was uh, it was a story that held for a week. And I I think in a weird way that is my most that would be my most memorable story. Wow, <laughs> what an insight that is as well. And what a story. I think so many people remember that at the time as well for being quite a, a shocking story where you just thought, wow, how on earth can this, this happen at a, at a club? But to be fair, Ashley's had a, a great career and I'm sure I'm sure he, he, he won't begrudge you that story. <laughs> um, yeah, he was kind of at loggerheads with the news of the world for, for, for other reasons, but... Uh... Listen, it's, uh, it, it was, it's one of those that will live long and live long in the memory, mainly because it lasted a whole week, and I don't think that could ever that would ever happen uh, these days. Absolutely. Um, the last question I've got, Paul, and before I ask it, thank you very much for being so generous with your time. It does mean a lot. The, it's, it's a very straightforward. It's an obvious question that I'm sure you're asked a lot, but I think it's important to ask you, given your experience and the work that you continue to do. What advice would you give to aspiring writers, aspiring football broadcasters that want to break into the space? There, there's, and that's very trite. To work hard, you don't don't think that you're just going to break into the industry and you're going to be a stellar writer. You have to put the hours in. You have to go to. I mean, it's difficult at the moment, but go to as if you want to be a football reporter, go to as many football matches as you can. Don't. You know, and even if you can't get to the game, watch them on telly and then write a report. Just write it. You know, they talk about athletes doing 10,000 hours of practice. Well, you know, you, you can't call yourself a true journalist until you've or a true football reporter, if you like, unless you're going to practice your craft. Just so nobody's seeing it don't, doesn't matter. Write it. Write it as if you're writing it live. And also it comes back again to something that we've we've spoken to throughout this. Callum, it's you've got to be able to speak to people. Don't send them emails. Don't send them texts. Speak to them. Pick the phone up. The biggest thing, the, my biggest bugbear is that, and especially when I was at the News of the World, is we'd have young aspiring reporters come in. They're saying, oh, I can't get hold of so-and-so. I said, well, how have you done it? How have you tried? Well, he's not answering an email. Well, okay. How else are you going to do it? I don't really know. I said, right, well, find out who his agent is. Speak to the media department at the club. Speak to this. There are so many ways of getting to people. Um, and you've got to build trust. You've got to build relationship. Do your damnedest never to let anybody down. Even if it means keeping something to yourself that you think might make a great story, sometimes you have to play the long game. The, 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 the biggest thing that I ever learned was covering Wimbledon, going back. This was the days of the crazy game. I could have led the back lead in my in my paper every single night with a with a Wimbledon story. But there are some stories that you kept out because you knew it would be a complete breakdown of trust. Now that the, the 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 payback for that is that if people trust you, they're likely to give you more. So if they see a story that you know you they've you've got that you have kept out of the papers or not used out of respect for somebody, then, you know, they feel like they owe you a sense of, um, you know, a sense of loyalty, a sense of trust, if you like. 
So it's it's about that. It's not about the sort of crash bang wallop. Well, I'll nail you and then move on to the next story. You can't operate like that. Nobody nobody operating at the highest level currently does that. Um, the beauty is there are so many more outlets for your work. You can self-publish uh, if you like, obviously with a, with a blog. Um, I would always say get somebody else to read it before you actually put it out there because you think you've written the best thing possible and there are no mistakes in it. There's no grammatical errors and somebody will find it and somebody will re read it. You should never sub yourself. You should never sub edit your own work. Try and get somebody, even if it's, even if it's, I don't know, I don't know who it would be, but just somebody to look at it and they'll always have a different point. At the Football Writers Association, you can be a member for 30 quid a year. It's, uh, it's dead easy. Um, you can be, a, if you're a student, you can be a student member for a fiver a year. It gets you is the Football Writers Association Members Handbook when I've, I've got it in front of me. Um, it's got 700 numbers in. 700, we've got 700 members um, around the, you know, around the country and abroad. It's also got the number of every football club press officer in it. Um, it's also got the FA, the Premier League, all their press offices. For 30 quid, you can't buy that level of information and insight. So, you know, there's a, there's a reason to join. That's a reason to join the Football Writers Association. Um, but it's just work. You've just got to work hard. And if, if the door's closed in your face, you've got to find another way in. And that could be the back door. It could be the window. Or you, or you just keep knocking at that door. And it's, there's, there's no shortcuts in this industry. And if, you, if you're taking shortcuts, you're not doing the job properly. Great advice and, and, and something that I definitely will, will heed. And I think people listening to this will as well. Thank you so much for your time, Paul, and continue the great work that you're doing, as I say, with the, the Football Writers Association, Press Box Confidential Podcast. If you haven't listened to it yet, check it out on all major streaming sites. It's available on everything where you get your podcast from Acast um, right through um, to, to Apple, right through to Podbean. So uh, if you've not listened to it yet, be sure to give it a go. Thanks for your time, Paul. Appreciate it, Callum. Take care. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will